Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. On today's edition, I travel to Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., to talk to Dr. Robert Schneider, who is Executive Director of PRTC, the Potomac and Rappahannock Transportation Commission, one of the largest operations in America that runs currently Flex Fixed Route Service. We'll talk to him about that service, also his take on solving some of the problems in transit, all that on this edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, your host of Transit Unplugged, and today's guest is Robert Schneider. Dr. Robert Schneider, actually, who is the executive director of the Potomac and Rappahannock Transportation Commission in Northern Virginia, uh, commonly known as PRTC. Bob, great to have you with us. Great to be here. So today we're going to be talking to Bob about uh, this very unique transit system in Northern Virginia. I think you'll be very interested to hear about it, some of his career, and Bob is, as I mentioned earlier, an actual PhD, a doctor, who's got some really interesting philosophies on what public transit needs to do in order to stay relevant. And we're going to talk about that today on Transit Unplugged. Bob, great to be with you today. Uh, so tell us a little about your transit system as a whole here. How long have you been here? And kind of give us the scope of what your service is. Okay, I've been here about seven months. The organization's been around for about 30 years. And it's a, a bit of a neat history in that this was really farm country till about 50 years ago. And a local developer kind of had that Levittown concept mm. and said, we need to develop a community that makes it really, really easy for Washington, D.C. workers to get to Washington, D.C., but also be affordable. So starting in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, they started developing all these suburbs. So our county has been hardcore suburban for its entire, really its modern existence, especially for a community that's 300 years old mm. um, when you think about it. So... As a result of that, we are very commuter service driven and have had that focus. We really don't have a downtown uh, within the eastern part along I-95. Our transit facility looks out on I-95 practically, yet our residents live in suburbs, even though we're in one of the most dense areas in the country when you think about the national capital region, which kind of runs from where we are all the way up to Baltimore. That's, mm -hmm. that's the reality. So with that, we have always had this long perspective of we take people to Washington, D.C. We take people to the Pentagon. And about 60 to 70 percent of our, our county workforce leaves every day. So unlike most transit systems that see the swell from the suburbs in, we are the opposite of classic transit. And then we take people out, which makes it a real struggle uh, in terms of our local transit system. But we have about 160 buses. We do around 2.8 million trips a year. $36 million budget, and with 160 million dollars, or 160 buses and 36 million most transit professionals are going, how do you do that? It's because it's predominantly peak service only. Mm. We're taking people one way in the morning to Washington, D.C., to the Pentagon, to the Navy Yard. Uh, the federal workforce rides with us every day, whether it's federal employees, department contractors, etc. So that's the lion's share of our work, and that's been our focus for 30 years, and it's been very good for us. We're politically and customer-based. That service is very well respected. We have the attention, the energy, and we're able to make a really big difference. 
without us every day, it would basically add another uh, 4,000 cars one way to I-95, mm. which, and uh, we're number one. When I say we're number one, we are at the worst traffic in the United States in terms of the number of backups per X number of miles. So we have this horrible traffic problem and we're part of that solution. So we're thrilled to be part of that. So tell us about Prince William County itself a little bit. Um, it's, um, isn't it one of the richest, quote unquote, richest counties in America? It is. Several of the richest, quote unquote, counties are actually right in the national capital region. And the, the reason for that is just because you do have such a high volume of people attached to federal government, contracting, Department of Defense, all of those things, but also because there's been, there's no large cities in essence mm. beyond Washington, D.C. You've got some big pockets, Arlington, no question, Alexandria, no question, but what you don't have is you don't have the large cities which have a tendency to have a drain in essence mm. on the local tax base. People might have heard of a town called Manassas, that's here, right? Absolutely, yeah. great community. Mm -hmm. uh, if you the Civil War started. I was going to say, at, yeah. in uh, depending on what part of the country you're from, right. it's Bull Run or Manassas. Right. Uh, but the city of Manassas is about uh, five, six miles away from the battlefield. It's a great community as a whole for a county. We not only have a national battlefield, but we have the National uh, Prince William Forest, which is a beautiful preserve mm -hmm. right outside of our gates. Um, for the county is a combination of inside Prince William County and Stafford County. Is Quantico Marine Corps? They call mm, it the crossroads right. of the Marine Corps. Right which also houses everyone who's ever seen a TV show called Quantico, the FBI, also NCIS, the Naval Criminal That's all Office. here in That's your county. That's all here, either in our county or just outside of it within the footprint. Okay. We have a very large military presence, a very large federal workforce presence, and it really defines us in a way that we are so tied. And it's a beautiful community. Right. Um, lush rolling hills, great families, um, great history. That's, that's Prince William County, Prince William but you County. also serve a little bit of outside of that, right? We do. And then uh, you've got um, you've got a board of directors. Yes. And so they're like some of your county council, or tell us how that works. So we have six different jurisdictions. Okay. So we have our city of Manassas, about 35,000 people, about 16,000 in Manassas Park. So we have one representative each from there. Then we have a town, uh, Fredericksburg, which is outside of our service area. But due to a gas tax unique organization, they're part of the overall commission mm -hmm. that allows them to collect some of the, the fuel tax revenues. And then we have six members from Prince William County, two from Stafford County, two from Spotsylvania County, and then we have three members from the General Assembly, one senator and, and two delegates. And then, of course, someone from our great friends at VDRPT. So it makes Virginia for, Department of yes, sorry, Rail and Public Transport. Acronym driven yeah, as yeah. we are up here. And you've got another V, uh, v type uh, company here called VRE, Virginia Railway Express. Tell us about your relationship with them. That's light rail, right? Uh, it's heavy commuter rail. Heavy commuter rail. Um, That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like Mark Train is in Boulder. Correct. We used to connect actually at Union Station. We are one of the two owners of VRE. And okay. this is the classic government solution to government problems. Yeah. But you had VRE in existence to help manage the WMATA compact for the Virginia communities was already the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission. Right. That's uh, Kate Matice, who's a great person, great leader, uh, works so well up there. So her organization, it predates her, uh, but the organization that she leads was in existence. Well, if the trains are gonna run through her community, how are we gonna get through the Prince William and the Stafford community to make all these things work? Mm -hmm. Who's gonna provide the governance? Well, let's form a new commission. Yeah. So they grabbed one or two different pieces of the different transportation options and created a new commission. 
So the commission was created around the concept of being one of the two parents of VRE. Okay. And so VRE launched its service in 1992. We're thrilled um, to, to have them. They're a great success, uh, great reputation. Yeah. Who's we their executive director? Doug Allen. Right, Doug. And are you on his board? Because or how does that work? Technically, they have a, my board, my commission, and right. uh, the NVTC commission. They are the two official owners, but they have a subset that's an operations board. Okay. All and right. Kate Matice and I both sit on that board in non-voting capacity. So we're okay. part of the um, the operations board I that helps you. oversee that. And they do a great job. You want to talk about making an impact uh, for our region. If you stripped them out of the equation, you'd be talking about, I think it's a 36-mile-long stretch of traffic. Oh. That's what they take oh. off our highways every day. I so think- between us... Fairfax, I think we did the math, and we basically moved the equivalent of three pulses of I-95 wow. in the transit system. That's amazing. And your operations here at PRTC, um, you have um, a staff which does the planning and what kind of things, and then how, what, who actually runs the service? We have a contracted service through First Transit. So okay. they do all of our fixed route service, all of our, all of our operations, all the safety and training, as well as all the maintenance. And I think something unique about your service, tell us a little bit about it, is the flex nature and how you're, you're um, unique in that, maybe in the whole country, one of the largest ones. Yes. Uh, we, when the ADA com- came on board, most transit systems developed the complementary paratransit solution, uh, which is the classic cutaway van, minivan, taxi, whatever model that is, to, to, to create the fixed route system separate from, from paratransit. The response here was to use the concept of a deviated fixed route where you build time into the schedule from point A to point B so that you can create really, we should say point A to point C, yeah. so that you can serve a point B. And it's open to anyone in the community along those corridors. The idea simply being you don't have to create a secondary service. Right. Uh, so because we, you flex. We flex. So right. if you are within three quarters of a mile and you, whether you live there or you want to go there, we will flex the vehicle and right. take you there. So in a sense, it's ADA service, not just for people with disabilities, but for everyone. Correct. It's it's curb-to-curb service throughout this, this defined service area. Right. So it's, it's really great in that you don't have the expense of the separate service. You don't have to have the confusing elements of which service do I ride. But as we've grown over yeah. the past it's become very years, popular, right? Yeah. Uh, it, well, and what happens is then if it doesn't get used, you have people sitting and waiting because you have it's fixed route service. You have to build the time in. It's like if you build too much time into your fixed route due to traffic, what happens when there's not heavy right. traffic? Right, right, right. Those kinds of things. We've all learned those lessons. So we're hitting some some uh, crossroads for us as an organization, and we really need to relook at our service model and examine whether or not and we think we're the largest deviated fixed route system in the country. Yeah. And I've got I think you are and, too, yeah. I've got friends and peers that operate this in small towns like Anderson, South Carolina. It works right. great for my friend Keith. He does a great job managing it. But we've had some conversations about how far can it go for his system? Mm-hmm. How far can it go when you have small mountain communities that operate, whether it's in the, the mountain west and rural Colorado or rural Montana, if we're going to try to grow and we're expecting another 20%, 30% increase over the next 15 years, how are we going to respond to that? How are we going to be able to do that if we're still flexing our services? Right. So there's some some big questions to ask and answer over the next year. Last scope question is, how are you funded? We are funded by a 
really our passengers provide a great amount of funding. Yeah, tell us about it. You've got a high uh, fare box recovery ratio on your biggest service. Correct, because we have the, what, what, well, let's back up a little bit. What really helps us is the federal government has the Smart Trips or the Smart Commute right. Plan, right. which provides $255 to the subsidy to those employees who sign up. So up to $255 of free transit. And by the way, people take advantage of it. It's yeah. amazing when you remove the fare barrier, yeah. how your ridership goes. But we're tied in with the Smart Trips program, which is us, WMATA, Fairfax Connector, Dash, Art, the whole package, we're all part yeah, of that. Yeah, Northern Virginia, yeah. And so we, I think, pull in around 50%, could be as high that? as 57. Amazing, man. But our local service, is only around 10%. Right, because in addition to the commuter service where you have like 100 buses running, big MCIs running in DC every day, you've got a local service. Correct, yeah. and so that doesn't have the ridership. That's the flex service we were talking about. Well, when you and when you take 60 to 70% of your workforce out, right. you're only left yeah. with 30 to 40% to serve. You're a major serve. commuting county, yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a flip side to being such a successful commuter service when you're doing an external commuter service. Mm -hmm. When you're commuting inward, then you get the benefit of bringing people in and keeping them for transit trips. Yeah. We, we don't, we're not in that situation right now. Right. So how did you end up here? So you've been here seven months, you said. So tell yes. us a little about your career and how you ended up as executive director, which is the equivalent of a CEO, basically, yes. running the service. But you're also kind of in charge of not just running day to day, but the planning and being on the board of VR. How'd you end up in this job? This job in particular, um, I really wasn't looking. A friend reached out and said, hey, there's this system, PRTC, PRT, P what? You know, yeah, well, yeah. what's the acronym on that? Yeah. And uh, I said, you might be interested because there's some involvement with rail. And as we all know in our business, steel wheel makes a big difference. Yes. So to migrate to that, so I was curious. And then I continued to have conversations. And then the opportunity and the draw, the professionalism of the staff, the big, the, the big question issues, you don't have to fight whether transit's important, it's more about how are you gonna fund it. Yeah, that's Everyone good. already knows it's important. Now it's figuring out how are we gonna, how are we gonna pay for the, that which we know. We all know schools are important, but right. we don't fund those as well. Yeah. We know, you know the police emergency services are important. It's striking that balance, but at least you don't have to ask the first question of is it important. So tell us about your career path up until when you made this decision. Where were you when this happened? And tell us about I was in background. Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. We had grown the system. Uh, I was uh, able to work with a great board of directors and a were great you, staff. Were you head there in Columbia? I was. I was executive okay. director there. I had been brought there by TransDev to be the GM slash executive director during a big budget crisis. Uh, they brought me there. So like a management contract? Management con well, it was truly a turnkey. Oh, well, you did everything. Okay. So they paid me, but I reported to the board. That was the gotcha. concept, okay. is that if we knew that if we could get to the other side of a potential sales tax, then it would change the game in terms of what transit could be. So they, they took a shot at me, they liked and decided to keep me, and they approached me and said, we, we'd love to have you be part, focus exclusively on the planning and the finance, and leave the operations to a op contract operator. So prior to that, I had been a private sector transit manager. Prior to Columbia, I was in Boise, Idaho. Mm -hmm. Had a, uh, a valley ride, worked with VRT, client up there named Kelly Fairless was fantastic. And then prior to that, I was in Knoxville, Tennessee with Knoxville Area Transit, worked with some great people there as well. We were there the first time they won Transit System of the Year. Ah. And it was great to be in Atlanta and see them win it again. Yeah, so, super that's awesome. Proud. They continue to do great things there. But how I got into transit is very simple. I was a PhD candidate at the University of Tennessee. My master's required an internship. 
and the place I got an internship was in the mayor's office. Well, the mayor's office oversaw transit, and away we go. Hmm. Rare, it, I never sought it out. I never thought, I want to run a bus system. I, I make the joke. I just kept showing up. And the thing about mass transit that I, I, I'm not sure everyone else can say this, every day is interesting. Mm -hmm. If you did not have an interesting day, then you just you, you didn't go to work. Yeah. Um, the people, the problems, the challenges, mm -hmm. the unique things that a community has to offer, there's always something interesting happening. Some days it's really hard. They're tough days, but a lot of days great things happen. And that's what has always kept me coming back is there's something always interesting happening inside of our world. Mm. And from the transportation perspective, I thought I'd be a professor of political science somewhere. I made that, had to make that choice at the fork in the road. Do I want to be the person that they write about or the person that writes it? Mm -hmm. And it's not because oh, I want the superstardom, because I don't, I'm not interested in that. I actually just want to make a difference. And it sounds cheesy, but I'm competitive and I like to win. If you like to win, then there's no other industry like transit to make you feel like you got an uphill battle. This is not easy. That's right. We are fighting against the best and the brightest with car innovation, technology innovation. They're producing beautiful new cars with awesome paint jobs and amazing technology. Yeah. Yet our transit buses haven't changed that much in 30 years. Perfect so, segue. <laughs> love, love, love the fact that we have such a challenging industry. And if you like to compete and like to win, this is the place to come. Well, that, as I mentioned, that's a perfect segue, and I wanted to save about half our time to talk about, because I think you've got some really interesting philosophies about what transit has to do to stay relevant uh, in this new age, in this new era. So, um, as you and I were talking about prior to this, uh, the paradigm for public transit in North America, and really around the world, but we're talking primarily to a North American audience, is really changing and probably over the next five years will change more than any other field I believe other than medicine. Uh, there's so many new things happening. Right. So right now uh, when you and I were talking uh, there has been you know a sudden burst on the scene of autonomous shuttles uh, working in open traffic for the first time you know in, in our history. Uh, there is um, you and I were talking earlier about how maglev which is uh, kind of today's technology is that being overtaken by Hyperloop? Uh, we're talking about the Ubers and the Lyfts and other uh, people using their phone to call a car to themselves or even, um, you know, uh, car sharing uh, that's happening all around. All these new paradigms are changing. People using their phones to pay for their service. So, you know, is uh, our fare boxes and, and that whole paradigm of cash, is that going away? Let's talk some about that. What do you think as you're, you know, a... a uh, doctor, and you've thought about this a lot, obviously. I mean, you even wrote your doctoral thesis on some transit-related matters. Um, what What are your thoughts generally about what transit has to do to stay relevant? What are the big problems that we're facing, and what can we do to solve them? How can we stay relevant and cut this ridership decline that we've experienced over the last five to ten years? Um, I think the number one thing is we have to study human behavior, and that sounds so obvious. But how much money is spent in marketing and development to pick out what color red that Ford is going to paint their new cars? We don't spend that much time asking any opinions whatsoever about what color we're going to paint our buses. Mm. I guarantee you they're going to come out boxy, they're going to come out white, and they're going to have a stripe on the side, and we're likely going to have the acronym of something put on it. <laughs> Nothing like that happens to a sports team. Nothing like that happens to private business. Interesting. So... Even in our first opportunity, we don't invest the time and energy to figure out 
what should we be doing? And the nature of what we do is very, very common because we're politically driven. Our boards of directors are frequently decision makers. They're elected officials. They have a different set, not of priorities. I think that's, that, that diminishes the value that they bring to the table. But they're focused on how can we demonstrate community service? How can we give people value? There's a different set of expectations. They're not saying study the human behavior and do what the, the vast majority of people need we tend to do the opposite in public organizations where we say, take a look at the most unmet need and meet it. That doesn't always drive efficiency. That doesn't always drive effectiveness, nor does it always drive customer service. So I think one thing that will really help us down the line is as we start to evolve in our leadership, not just at the CEO level, but through our appointed boards and elected boards or through the staff that we bring on, how, how attentive are we to the very things that people can understand what are they going to do? What decisions are they going to make? I was talking to a gentleman from London and we talked a little earlier about London. And one of the fun things is that I'm obsessed with is fare collection mm. because fare collection in transit is a currency exchange. I got to throw that out to my friend, Sam Scheib, who said, it's all a currency exchange. You're taking good hard American cash and putting that money on a card. And when you do that, you don't get it back. We don't make it easy to get it back. Well, what this guy was describing is when you go to London, you just pay your fare with your credit card. That's right. But what he said, contactless. and I, I really, I, I believe him when he said it, it was hard for me to believe what you do is you're charged a maximum amount. They give you the best deal. So if you ride 10 times, they stop charging you at the day pass rate. That's right. Their software figures it out. It's Whoa, amazing. that's a game changer yes, because now what they've done is they've eliminated the barrier to say, you're only going to pay for that which you needed. Yes. We don't do that here. You you have to figure out in advance. Yes. Um, and there's this great you story. Do your algebra. Yes. Is it cheaper for me to use a monthly pass or a day pass? or? So yeah. I was riding uh, with my parents. I have my wife, my two daughters, my mom and dad and I. We did a vacation up to uh, one of the big cities in the U.S. And we, we all rode the bus to get to the train station. And we rode the train station to the city. We had a great time. We rode back. Six people with the fares, et cetera, because there's no discount for kids or anything like that because they don't know how old the kid is when they go through the turnstile. It ended up costing us $36 for a one-way trip. By the time you added in the zone fare, the base fare, the bus fare, it was silly. And well, 72 round trip. 72 round trip. To go into the city. And, and back. Okay. Um, and of course we're traveling in the, um, uh, one was an off-peak, one was an on-peak time. So it was just, we got we traveled from one end of the system to the other, but I was dead set against driving in. And as we were walking out, lamenting the fact of what we'd paid, we saw that the parking at the Hilton was $54. So you could have driven your car right in and had valet parking at the place you wanted to go. And covered the tip. Wow. <laughs> For less. For less, yeah. The second part of that, and the math was if our daughters weren't in the picture, then it's equal. Right. So one of the so I took that away. Another thing that happened is because we had had different travel schedules. We had more money on our card to get out of the system than my mom and dad did. So we hit the fare gates and we got through, but mom and dad didn't have enough money. The TVMs were all broken, or at least not operational at that moment, and there was no one in the booth to answer questions. So my mother and father were trapped inside the transit system and couldn't get out. It's like the Matrix. Good parents, <laughs> right. Charlie and the MTA. Yeah. Good, you know, my, my good parents didn't want to break the rules and just crash the gate and get out. We ended up missing our transfer to the bus to get back to the, the hotel. And my mom's words were, I'll never ride this system again. It's freezing cold outside, right? Brutal cold. It was Christmas time. Yeah. Brutal cold. We had to sit. I think it was a 40-minute 
between wow. headway. So we sat for four, and we had planned it so we were fine. Yes. But the five minutes they lost trying to get out of the station yes, cost us 40 minutes of 10 degree weather. And mom said, I'm not riding again. So, so the two hardest parts of transit are? Where to stand and what, what do you pay? And that was sort of the issues she had, really both those issues in a sense. Right. Yeah. So right. we got to solve that, right? Correct. Now, who has already solved that? A couple different companies out there, for example, were really impressed with what um, Translokes done. Uh, another company, Double Map, they really started on the college campus. It was an easy, closed environment. And they really started to address some of those solutions. Um, there's all sorts of new companies that come online. But the rider, but the uh, the shared rider companies, didn't you tell oh, them? Yeah, like, the, the, oh, yeah. Like the Lyfts or whoever they, they've already? Yeah, Uber and Lyft, they're yeah. way ahead of us. So how have they solved where do I stand and what do I pay? They bring it on your phone. Right. You Where do you want to go? You pick point A to point B. There's no trip planning. You don't have to figure it out. Google already does this. So they're really doing what Google does. Mm. If you say from my location to where you want to go, Google tells you, you can walk it, you can bike it, you can drive it, you can transit it. Mm -hmm. Gives you all the options. But So they're mimicking that, but then what they've done is they tell you, you can project how much it's gonna cost. And then if you wanna do it, you go for it. And as long as it's a low enough price, you'll do it. And you can stand anywhere. anywhere. And they'll come to you, yeah. Correct, yeah. it's to the point where it, it, it's, how many people when they drive their car and they wanna go somewhere, they walk out, they sit in the driver's seat, then pull their phone out, and then plug in their directions. With transit, you can't do that. Uber has mimicked the driving experience where you just go to where you wanna go, I'm here, I wanna go here, and then you wait. So you had told me you see there's four really uh, things that, are, that we need to do in order to make transit relevant. The first is to? You have to plan it. It has to be simple, easy, quick, in the moment planning. Not I'm gonna figure it out tomorrow. This, right. isn't, this isn't an airplane trip, this isn't a cruise. I just need to get somewhere now. And the second is to? You gotta be able to track your vehicle. So you gotta have that technology in your vehicle to track it. And we do that in airports. When you walk in, what is the first thing you do? You walk up to the gate, where's my plane? Then right. you go to the gate and you look out to see if your plane's there. Right. And until that vehicle shows up, you don't have any faith in the travel. If you can see <laughs> that the bus is coming down the highway, yeah. you suddenly have faith. Right. And so now the ability to track keeps that confidence going. And that's what Uber does. Yeah. And lift. You can track, you know it's right around the corner. Yep. So it eliminates that that fear. And what about the third thing? The third thing you've got to do is be able to pay for it. Okay. And the payment has to be painless. You don't want to feed dollar bills into a machine. You don't want to have to carry an extra card. I think everyone's tired of carrying around right. their grocery store barcode. Yes. And the, the phones have now have apps where all those barcodes are in it. You go to Starbucks and they scan your phone to pay for your... Yes. To, to, why can't transit do that? Why can't transit yeah. do it? And I think they're trying to. And then the final one is, which I think is really interesting. We were talking about doing this at the MTA before I left in Baltimore, which is... Play. Play. Um, gamification. Gamification. Social media. How many cars am I have I taken off the... How many vehicle miles have I taken off the road in my travels this year by Ubering or by doing a ride share or a van pool? We, we're good at that when we do like uh, Tri Transit Week or something like that. Right. But we don't make it part of the social media experience. Tell me about what you were recommending that somebody do, like a transit system to build loyalty and to get information from riders. They get on, they pay with their phone, and then what? Ten seconds later, it pops up. Please, whether it's a thumbs up, a three stars, five stars, whatever. Um, was the bus stop clean? Was the driver friendly? How full is the bus? Gauge opinion and attitude because now what you're doing is your customers are now telling, you're showing your customer that you care what they think. 
it gives you meaningful data. We spend a small fortune to not capture in the moment data. We, we tend to survey reflectively. Mm -hmm. uh, people will always remember their worst trip. If you can capture that, and what that does is you then feed through gamification, whether it's social media, or maybe it's points toward an Uber credit. You answer up to 10 questions, we throw 10 points at a blank, right? and that's a $1 Or a Starbucks or, or a transit pass. Correct, so, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes maybe it's just transit goodies. So if yeah. you're a big system. Oh yeah, t-shirts or whatever, yeah. How about the ponchos that, yeah. you know, you when you go to some of these big cities that have the um, connection stores, you could sell the passes, the briefcases, the, the stuff that breaks, your poncho, umbrellas, things that just let you spend money. It's already a currency conversion. Allow your customers to be loyal. And we don't really have a way in which cust customers always say to us when we do a bad job, I think I'll just drive my car. Mm. I get that because it's an alternate mode of transit. Instead, what when you go to a restaurant that you love and you have a bad experience, you're okay with it because you know that overall they do a great job. We don't have that loyalty because we don't put enough emphasis and interest on how do we make our customers feel like they're as invested in what we do as we are. I've never met anyone in our industry who hates transit. I've never met anyone who hates what they do. People like it, most love it, but they at least like it. Our customers need to understand that we care as much as we do and we have to build some level of investment with that. How do sports teams achieve it? How do, yeah. how do businesses, how does Apple have people with phrases like fanboy? You know, where are the transit fan fanboys and fangirls? What have we done to bring them into the fold? And I'm not sure we've done enough to make them so committed that they're willing to, to take time and energy out of their day to be a part of us. And that's a big change. Yep. That's a social aspect that we really haven't tapped into. So with one last question, what was one piece of advice you would give to any transit system manager that is listening to us right now to help their system remain relevant, you know, gain ridership? What could somebody do? What one or two things would you suggest somebody take a look at right now if they're looking at how can I improve what I'm doing? Don't be so arrogant as to think your customers can't run this as well as we can. They may not be able to run it every day the way we do because we live and breathe it but they're smart, they got ideas. They're sitting in that park and ride lot or they're riding that route every day. They've got ideas. And we tend to only capture their opinion when we're either surveying or when there's a problem or a public hearing. So crowdsource your transit. Absolutely, why yeah, not? Right. Why not take the different ideas? And we've had some dynamic leaders in our region. They have transportation think tanks or how can we try to solve the traffic problem? It tends to be traffic driven, mm -hmm. but how can we improve the light? What do you see? If you can get 70 people who commute in a room, can 70 people try to find a solution and can they all work together to find some middle ground? Because in, in our world, we're always trying to figure out how do I serve these people without, without hurting these people? Mm -hmm. Let some of that happen organically and let people have that natural give and take ebb and flow. And it's really, really expensive. You have to hire people. Are we willing to fund and staff that? But don't don't think that our customers don't have answers. And that's, that's good. That's been a transformational uh, part of my career. And I picked that up. I had a client out in Boise, Idaho, Kelly Fairless. Uh, every time we'd have the public hearing, what I loved about what she sh we would do is we would show up an hour beforehand with our easels to answer questions and get ideas and then have the public hearing. Wow. And we never went into the public hearing assuming we had the final solution. We always assumed going in that our customers were gonna change our product. And over and over, I've seen she was absolutely right.
and that's the approach we've taken, um, at least I've taken, yeah. as much as I can. So if I had to summarize that, I've just had a thought while you were talking <laughs> uh, that I think is good, which is, and I, I never thought this before until you just said all that, and that is that public transit is no longer a monopoly. In the past, we have been, we've had a monopoly on mobility in cities, and now we are not. There are so many other options available. Ooh, I'm going to steal that. And so we need to adapt like the private sector does, and we need to become, basically realize that we're in a competitive market now. So we need to be doing a lot more research from what our customers want, like you talked about, Ford, figuring out what kind of cars. Like, I just drove a cherry red uh, convertible Camaro when I was in San Diego, and I can tell you, I was in love I told my daughter was driving. I am in love with this car. The look, the feel. We're, people aren't in love with transit, so we need to stop acting like in the monopoly and start acting like we're in competition. Correct. Yeah. We are. We are after hearts and minds. That's as good. A good friend of mine who's in the military. Yeah, the exactly. The Vietnam, we're after yeah. hearts and minds, yeah. and the reality is, we're not here to to force our presence. We're not here. If you don't like it, fine. Don't ride it. Uh, we have to. I keep saying, um, we we genuinely have to make that concrete separation between what we know we can do and people, what people want us to do, and do the things that our customers need. Also, being very honest to say we can't do everything, mm. and I'm not sure we're good at. That's the other thing I'm not okay. sure we're good at. That's good. Yeah, I'm not sure we're good enough as an industry from a leadership standpoint, from a, a, a political standpoint, governance how can we say no lovingly? Mm. And I don't know if we've figured that out yet. It's very hard in the public sector to do that. Wow. What a great way to close this podcast of Transit Unplugged, really talking unplugged to Dr. Robert Schneider about uh, what does the transit industry need to do in order to remain relevant, to compete in this new mobility market we find ourselves in. It's been great talking to you, Bob. We look forward to maybe having you speak at some conferences in the future and being uh, a real voice in this transit industry, somebody who's thought it through, who's young enough to um, gonna still make a 20 or 30 year difference in our business going forward. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.